توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای سلام in the name of the god of rainbows welcome to woman life freedom all in on iran a podcast series in which we'll go deep in conversations with experts on various aspects of the revolutionary uprising that began in Iran in September when 22-year-old Mahsa Jina Amini was killed in morality police detention. In each episode, we'll unpack an important aspect of the unfolding of this historic moment in Iran. I'm your host, Nahid Siamdus, an assistant professor of media and Middle East studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Our intention is to quote-unquote archive the important insights of our experts here and now, both in their capacity as professional observers as well as humans living through these momentous times. Stay tuned. This week we'll be speaking with Janet Afari. Dr. Afari is Melicham Professor of Global Religion at the University of California in Santa Barbara. She has published widely on various aspects of modern Iran, often with a focus on gender. She really is an expert in this field with her award-winning book, Sexual Politics in Modern Iran, published by Cambridge University Press in 2009, which was the winner of the British Society for Middle East Studies annual book prize. She also has written widely on Iran's constitutional revolution, on Foucault and the Iranian revolution, gender and the seductions of Islamism. And her newest book is about white marriages in contemporary Iran. But first, a quick recap of the most important events leading up to this week's episode. Today is February 20th, and the most important event that's happened leading up to today's interview is the issuing of a charter of minimum demands. This has been issued by 20 independent organizations, Iranian trade unions, feminist groups, and student organizations, in which they list their minimum demands. And this has been an important charter that has been shared widely on social media and discussed. And many people are pointing to it as a most progressive charter that could really illuminate the path forward for the kind of Iran that many of these rights organizations in the country have been calling for. So I think what I'll do is really just read the demands, the, these minimum demands that have been posted in this charter by these 20 independent organizations. It starts with, and I won't read the preamble, but it addresses the noble and free people of Iran on the occasion of the 44th anniversary of the 1979 revolution. These are the demands that they are articulating. One, immediate and unconditional release of all political prisoners, prohibition of criminalizing political union and civil activities, and public trials for those responsible for suppressing popular protests. Two, Unconditional freedom of opinion, expression, thought, political parties, local and national trade unions, popular organizations, gatherings, strikes, marches, social networks, and the media. Three, immediate cancellation of the issuance and execution of any type of death penalty and retribution and prohibition of any type of mental and physical torture. Four, Immediate and full equality of rights between women and men in all political, economic, social, cultural, and family spheres, 
unconditional abolition of discriminatory laws against sexual and gender relations and tendencies, recognition of the Rainbow Society, LGBTQIA+, decriminalization of all gender relations and tendencies, unconditional adherence to all women's rights over their bodies and destiny and preventing patriarchal control. Five, religion is a private matter of the individuals and should not interfere in the political, economic, social, and cultural destiny and laws of the country. Six, ensure work safety, job security, and an immediate increase in the salaries of workers, teachers, and employees, whether they are all still active or retired with the involvement and agreement of elected union representatives. Seven, abolish laws and any behavior based on ethnic or religious discrimination and oppression, establish appropriate supporting infrastructures as well as the fair and equal distribution of government resources for the growth of culture and art in all regions of the country and provide the necessary and equal facilities for the learning and teaching of all languages used in society. Eight, limit the influence of the government and grant people the right to interfere in local and national councils directly and permanently, dismissing any government or non-government official by voters at any time should be among the voters' fundamental rights. Nine, Confiscate the properties of the individuals and governmental, semi-governmental, and private institutions that have taken the property and social wealth of the Iranian people hostage through direct looting or government rent. The wealth obtained from these confiscations should be immediately used to modernize and reconstruct education, pension funds, the environment, and the needs of the regions and Iranians who have been deprived and had fewer facilities under the regimes of the Islamic Republic and the monarchy. 10, end environmental destruction, implement policies to revive the environmental infrastructure that has been destroyed over the past 100 years and publicize the natural areas that have been privatized, such as pastures, beaches, forests, and foothills, depriving the people's rights to, on them. 11. Prohibit children's work and provide their education regardless of their family's economic and social status. Establish public welfare through unemployment insurance and strong social security systems for all the people who are of legal age to work or are unable to work. Additionally, provide free education and health care for all the people of Iran. 12. Normalize foreign relations at the highest levels with all the countries in the world based on fair relations and mutual respect, ban the acquisition of nuclear weapons, and strive for world peace. And then the signatories write, in our opinion, the above minimum demands can be achieved immediately, given the country's potential and actual underground wealth, the presence of informed and capable people, and a generation of young people who are motivated to enjoy a happy, free, and prosperous life. I read the translation of this charter, which is published on Iran Wire, the online zine. I'm sure there are competing translations, but the essence is, of course, the same. Okay, moving on to our interview. <laughs> Well, hello. Our guest today is Professor Janet Afari. It is such a pleasure to have you today, Professor Afari. Thank you very much, Dr. Siam Dus. It's a pleasure to be here with your podcast. 
Professor Alfari holds the Melichamp Chair in Global Religion and Modernity at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where she's a professor of religious studies. She's a historian of modern Iran and, and has a PhD in history and Near East studies from the University of Michigan. She has so many wonderful publications, and it's really just such an honor to have her on this program to speak on this particular topic at the intersection of gender, history, and politics. Her award-winning books include Sexual Politics in Modern Iran, published by Cambridge University Press in 2009, The Iranian Constitutional Revolution, Grassroots Democracy, Social Democracy, and the Origins of Feminism from Columbia University Press. And these discussions about the Constitutional Revolution have, of course, become so resonant today with the Women Life Freedom Movement. And Foucault and the Iranian Revolution Gender and the Seductions of Islamism, published in 2005, and more recently, Iranian Romans in the Digital Age, from Arranged Marriage to White Marriage, Sex, Family, and Culture in the Middle East, published in 2021, and recently translated into Persian. Dr. Afari publishes frequently in both academic journals and also more mainstream publications. Again, wonderful to have you here. There is just so much to discuss with you, and I just hope that I can do some of your work justice in this interview. Thank you very much. Wonderful. I mean, you have such a breadth, so <laughs> it's quite difficult to figure out actually where to start and what to draw on. So what I, I think what I'm going to do today, if it's okay with you, given your recent piece in Descent magazine that you published in December, Woman, Life, Freedom, the Origins of the Uprising in Iran, you give the sweeping history of the intersection of gender and politics in a sort of ranging more than 100 years. And it's both a great historical analysis analysis, but also political analysis. And I'm going to be drawing on your historical knowledge equally. And I hope that I, I can sort of start start there a little more than a century or so ago and just ask you, when you look at the woman life freedom movement, and I know you mentioned this a little bit also in, in the piece you recently published in Descent magazine, where do you see some of these role models? The movement in Iran didn't come out of nowhere. We've had great precedents of revolutionary figures and icons who held the torch long ago. Who sort of comes to your mind when you think about some of these champions of women's rights? Well, the persecutions of the Islamic Republic have produced almost an amnesia about the history of women's rights in Iran. The reality is that women have been mm. extremely active in the last century, more than a century. Just going back to just the beginning, end of 19th century, Bibi Khanum Astarabadi comes to mind, who marked the intellectuals over time for their misogyny and hypocrisy. 20s and 30s, Sadiqi Dolat Abadi, who was an activist, pioneer, educator, and pioneered the unveiling movement. In the 40s, Iranian women feminists were quite active in the Iranian Communist Party, the two-day party. The one that comes to mind is Dr. Fatima Sayyar, the professor, but also a strong advocate of women's suffrage. And then the 60s and 70s, we have a whole generation of women who are campaigning for women's rights. Of course, they're hampered by the fact that they have to do it within the limits of the Pahlavi monarchy, the authoritarian Pahlavi monarchy. But nevertheless, they're quite remarkable. In Merangiz Manu Cherian, member of parliament who campaigns for women's rights and reforming religious laws and marriage laws. Farrokh Parsa, minister of education. She was also my former 
former school principal, Setari Farmun Farmoyon, who started the NGO movement in Iran. Among minorities, even Shamsi Hikmat, who had one foot in the Women's Organization of Iran and reformed inheritance rights for Iranian women. Mahnoz Afghami, who was, of mm-hmm. course, Minister of Women's Affairs. And on... Um, let me end with that because as a poet, filmmaker, and somebody who really broke so many taboos. And today, of course, we're in an age when, I don't know how many people in America and Europe know this, but the leadership of so much of the protest movement in Iran is in the hands of women. Women have been, and not just like yesterday, for the last decade at least, various campaigns for ending execution of prisoners, of rights of political prisoners, or ecology movements, as well as feminist movements, as well as movements of various ethnic nationalities of Iran. All of these have had really strong female presence. And let me just say here that we this is really the strength of this recent movement, that it really is building on this long century, if you will, of women's activism. I mean, this is really astounding because you know, you've know you just named so many very powerful leaders championing women's rights. And it's almost like it's parallel when we look at this um, avalanche of decades of women really trying to fight and push and claim more rights. It's kind of parallel to really Iranian nation at large trying to achieve freedom and democracy and justice, and yet not really so far having achieved it. And I wonder, what do you, both as a professional who's observing and has been studying these matters for decades, but also as an Iranian woman, why do you think we're still here, given these champion women who you've mentioned going back over a century? Why are we still in this, not still, but why have we actually almost not almost, but actually gone back, right, in terms of rights and freedom. I actually don't say that we haven't achieved very much. I would say that we've actually achieved an enormous amount, but that the stakes have been extremely high and the barriers have been so unbelievable. I mean, when you think of the beginning of the 20th century, for example, let me just compare Iranian women not to, for example, European and American women, but let's compare them to women in Turkey or women in South Caucasus. So in Turkey, for example, you had schools for midwifery, you have women's publications for their own time, considered feminist in terms of groundbreaking issues they discuss. And in South Caucasus, where it also shared Iran's Shi'i culture, you had pioneering men who actually were opening private schools for women, and you had women philanthropists, and we had women heads of numerous NGOs. And in that very same period in Iran, the clerics were absolutely 100% adamantly opposed to girls' education. I mean, they were opposed to all kinds of secular education, but particularly girls' education. There were no girls' girls school other than what some missionaries, for example, Presbyterian missionaries had created, or for example, Alliance Israel had created primarily for the Jewish community. There were none. And so this is the barrier. This is the barrier that Iranian women face, even in the region, by standards of the region. So we've come a long way, actually, Mm -hmm. from those days and have achieved an enormous amount. And of course, when you break so many barriers, 
there are bound to be backlashes. Mm-hmm. Gone through two steps forward and one step backward. Uh, sometimes three steps forward and two steps backwards. But we have nevertheless made an enormous, I mean, looking back at it, for example, from the Reza Shah period, I would say. Mm-hmm. I, I was just about to ask you about the Reza Shah period. His reign is commonly sort of credited with having really modernized Iran also in the gender sphere. And I wonder whether you think, and of course, his very controversial ban on veils is still widely discussed today in the context of having in some ways almost caused the imposition of the veil again with the Islamic Revolution in 1979. And I wonder how you viewed the reign of Reza Pahlavi, the first uh, Pahlavi monarch who crowned himself in 1924. Right. So when Reza Shah became Shah, I mean, he was brought to, with British support to power, he became mm-hmm. Shah because the clerics didn't want to see another Kemalat Turk in Iran. So although he was perfectly happy to be president, they insisted that he should become king. But when he came to power, he actually recruited to his cabinets and various positions a generation of constitutionalists, people who had fought two decades earlier for greater democratization and modernization in Iran. And the constitutionalists made a decision that they couldn't achieve democracy under Reza Shah, although they very much wanted to, but that it could at least attain some of the reforms that they had wished to do. And I would put these reforms in four categories that they a very short period they achieved. Mm-hmm. So one was the reforms in health and hygiene, stopping the spread of venereal diseases and public bathhouses. And what that did is that greater awareness of science, for example, vaccination, and the fact that alcohol was actually something good because it was used in vaccination, undermined the authority of the Shia clerics and many of their sayings, for example, alcohol is a taboo, and in many other areas. So the whole authority of the clerical establishment almost broke apart in this period as a result of these health reforms. The second were educational legal reforms. So suddenly you have tens of thousands of girls going to school and then going to the university and then joining various government organizations that were propagating literacy and legal reforms. And, you know, Mm -hmm. marriage goes up for girls to 15, for boys to 18. But these reforms are also desegregating Iran. They're mitigating dramatically social hierarchies. Mm -hmm. The dress reforms of the, which is a third one that I was going to talk about, the dress code, actually does two things. One goal of it is to present a more modern image of Iran to the Western world because, of course, the colonial powers had always used the question of gender, going back to the British in Egypt, for example, the French in Algeria, but the same thing in Iran, saying that they were on this civilizing, modernizing bent. And, of course, what they gave as an example was the status of women. Women are very backwards, and what they used as measure of backwardness was the way women dressed and men dressed. And so in one stroke, Reza Shah and his people, basically, I should say, decided to just take this away from the Western world. You say we're backwards because of the hijab or the dress or the veil or the turban. Well, we're going to just dress like you. And that was an enormously important thing in break, in essentially silencing, if you will, in some ways, the Western colonial discourse. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, it had what you mentioned ramifications inside Iran, which I'll talk about in a second. But it also did something else because these 
dress code, the way your turban was, the way your belt was, that actually said what social class you were from and what religion you were from. And when that was taken away, when people started wearing uniform clothing, essentially, you could no longer say who was a Baha'i, who was a Zoroastrian, who was a Sunni, mainly. everybody looked the same. Because Iranians are, can't really be distinguished based on the color of their skin, Mm-hmm. or even most of the time based on their dialect, if they're speaking Persian. And so that was another thing that really reduced social hierarchies in the Reza Shah period. And then finally, I would say there were reforms that contributed to normative heterosexuality. Mm-hmm. By that, I mean centering. The constitutionalists were very bent on arguing that the proper relationship is that between a man and a woman, and that there should be companionship between a husband and wife. They were against polygamy. So a lot of these reforms were aimed at creating a more a monogamous marriage, if you will, in Iran. Mm-hmm. Although they didn't abolish polygamy, but they made it more uh, culturally unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And the second thing was that Iran still had a tradition of men maintaining boy concubines. If you've mm-hmm. seen videos about Afghanistan today even, that's, that tradition has stayed in Afghanistan. But in Iran, it was... I wouldn't say eradicated, but fundamentally undermined in the 30s. It's a tradition for men, not they're wealthy, but also like a shopkeeper, for example, or an officer. They all had like boy servants who basically were their boy concubines. And so a lot of laws are passed in the 30s that make it simply unacceptable. So I, I'm not saying that it disappears because I've found later on in research examples of it in the 50s of 60s also, 1950s mm-hmm. and 60s. But I would say that it becomes far less acceptable culturally, right? Because, the thing that I yeah. wanted to come back to is that Shi'ism is a, what we call a religion based on purity laws. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not the only religion. Sun, Islam in general is, but Shi'ism far more. But so is Orthodox Judaism, so is Zoroastrianism, so is, mm-hmm. for example, Hinduism. And in these religions, the way you perform your religious obligations is by maintaining certain rules and rights of, about segregation. So these are highly hierarchical societies in which gender segregation is a pivotal aspect of your religious observance. So lack of contact between men and women, for example, or very detailed rituals of cleansing called ablution after sexual conduct. All of these create an enormous amount of anxiety in these societies about the mingling of sexes. And so what happens in the 30s, as these reforms are carried out, Iranian society becomes less segregated, mm-hmm. more interaction between men. Women actually basically come to the public sphere. You start to have an enormous anxiety on the part of the more observant sectors of society about how they could still be good cheese when every day their encounters with the world is breaking these social taboos. Thank you so much for that very clear explanation as to why sort of genders mixing created such deep anxieties about countering the kind of religious purity that right. was the norm. And why gender reform in Iran particularly has to go, has had to go 
hand in hand with religious reform because it's not sufficient to just introduce laws in the, for example, as the Pahlavis did to try to reform. You actually have to do something very fundamental with religious perceptions of people. This work has also been done. It started with the constitutional revolution. I actually mm. have a book on that about the Qudas, for example, contribution to that. I don't know how much our listeners are familiar with the Iranian history, but mm-hmm. a great deal of work was done by Ahmad Kastravi, for yep. example, in the 30s. And then kind of reform took place in the 60s and 70s. It was very problematic, but it, its aim was to reform Shiism that I'm referring to, for example, Ali Shariati. Mm. But it ended up politicizing Islam as it tried to move it away from these rituals. Mm-hmm. And then I would say the generation of reformers, starting in the 1990s, they started also moving away from a textual, fiqh, jurisprudence-based kind of reading of, of Shia. That's been also very important. But of course, the biggest problem has, in that area has been every time they encounter gender and sex sexuality, they have trouble. Most of them have trouble. With, we try to break that barrier too. Interesting, even though what you're saying is that on the religious front, this kind of modernization and reforms has also taken place, but perhaps the anxieties around sex and gender are so deeply rooted. That they despite- are so deeply rooted, but we do have people who are doing it. For example, a terrible example these days, of course, was Abdul Karim Surush. And mm-hmm. You've probably heard the story about how yes. he was attacking. With um, Bolshifte Marahoni or... She could shift Farahani, yeah, right? Yeah. So how dare an actress who's appeared in nude or semi-nude images come and talk about Iranian reform? So you have that. But actually his son is a very good example, you know, mm-hmm. so he is far more open. He's still a reformist, but he's far more open. He talks about the need for people to accept and recognize, for example, cohabitation, white marriages, and living together basically as a legitimate form of existence. That's far more open on questions. So there's some work also being done by the newest generation in that regard. But in a way, to me, the two have to go hand in hand because the roots of these issues are so much within, as you just mentioned, religious just thinking. Yeah, so this is ongoing work uh, more than a century, I suppose. It's ongoing work and still highly sort of contested and problematic. And yeah, I thought it was interesting. It was a few days ago, I guess, that initially very much part of the Islamic revolution and its cultural revolution, but then dissident Abdul Karim Surush said something like, how dare somebody like uh, Golshifta Farahoni, the actress who had to strip down from head to toe in order to be accepted in Western society, pretend that she's the she's one of the leaders of the opposition. And I would love to talk to you actually about the opposition coalition once we get to it. But I'm I think we're benefiting so much from your historical insights here that if you don't mind, let's continue on this front. So then, of course, Reza Pahlavi associates himself too much with the central powers or isn't relenting enough to the Allied forces during the Second World War, and he is forcibly dethroned by the Allies, and his son, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, is put in his place. And I wonder, um, how did Mohammad Reza Pahlavi basically continue his father's work? Is that, or did he sort of accelerate it? So just before talking about him, the 40s was actually a period of opening up in Iran because the young Shah was very weak. His father was gone. Mm-hmm. Although Iran was occupied, 
by the Allies. It meant that Iranians came in daily contact with Western culture, with Western mores, through publications, through film, especially through these propaganda films that the Allies were creating, as well as the Germans, of course. I mean, there's also a very big German influence in Iran. In first, it's the Social Democrats, Weimar Republic, and then it's the Nazi period. But I'm not going to segue to that. So but the, the, the biggest, of course, important, board, most important reform is the formation of the Iranian two-day party, Communist Party, which has recruits women, has a lot of women members. And that breaks down also Iran's social hierarchies because you have Sunnis and Muslims and Baha'is sitting together in a room talking about women's rights. And they become champions of women's suffrage. And the question of women's suffrage becomes, again, very important when Mohammad Mossadegh becomes Iran's prime minister. He is very lenient. It's, I mean, pro- progressive on this issue. He would like to give women the right to vote. But then this, again, becomes a huge controversy. He's trying to keep a coalition as he's trying to nationalize Iran's oil. He's trying to find British colonialism. Of course, the Americans are playing both sides here. And he, at a certain point, he realizes he kind of has to let go of this women's issue because he will lose. And at any rate, he does lose the coalition because of his more progressive issues on gender and on questions of religion. But this becomes again important. Now, when we move to the Mohammed Shah period, it's really the 60s. And it's in a way directed to, related to Iran because the Kennedy administration comes to power And they suggest now that everything in America is seen from the prism of worldview of communism versus capitalism. And it's this bipolar world, basically. You're either with the communist regime or you're with the Western capitalist regimes, right? Right. And so he and his administration suggest a sort of a some degree of liberalization, particularly gender liberalization, as a way of forestalling the growth of communism in Iran. So you know, military build-up, they sell a lot of arms to the Shah and they try to fortify the military, but at the same time, they push him towards greater reform because they understand that young people are attracted by changes that they saw happening in the Soviet Union and particularly reforms with regard to women's rights that had happened there. And so they said, well, let's do this under these under the monarchy. So the Shah introduces something called the White Revolution. Mm-hmm. And he says, you wanted a revolution, I'll give you one, except it's going to be a bloodless one. And that's why he calls it the White Revolution. It's, it's not Red Revolution. And he, he puts in a lot of things that since the Constitutional Revolution and then the Tudor Party had been demands of the Iranian left. So nationalization of forest, redistribution of government land, sale of government land, profit sharing for workers, and literacy corps. And the literacy corps gradually involves also women who are, mm-hmm. they go and become teachers in villages around the country. But women then start pushing for women's suffrage. They say, if you bring women if you give him the right to vote, when you want to have a referendum on these issues, then you're going to have so many women also come and vote. And it's on that grounds that he basically says, okay, I'm going to agree to women's suffrage because the women that I mentioned to you earlier, the generation of the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. push him into. And so that's how women end up getting suffrage, the right to vote in Iran. Right. So the White Revolution is launched. He launches it in 1963. And there were active interest groups, women's groups, who pushed him towards suffrage for women to finally get the vote so that they can aid him in carrying out these sweeping reforms 
um, in Iran. And maybe I should say a little bit also about the other reforms of this period. So there's the Women's Organization of Iran, which has four, 400 branches, 70,000 members. And it starts with literacy, moves to vocational trading, healthcare, legal counseling, and then advice for marriage and divorce inheritance issues, childcare, and even fighting sexism and portrayal of women in books and publications, for example. And they were actually, I think they got a bad rap afterwards, but they were rather careful at the time. For example, they would have theaters in the more secular parts of city. They would have Rosakhoni for the religious parts. They would be unveiled women in one chapter, there'll be veiled women in another chapter. Even the clerics supported the Shariat Madori, Ayatollah Shariat Madori, for example, Azerbaijan. He sent his daughters to the organization. Mm-hmm. But what happened, and this is a really nice interview with Mahnas Afkhami, who was head of the organization at the time, mm-hmm. he says that we realized that there were lots and lots of cultural barriers. So the, you know, the Basically, the organization is an example of state feminism. They're operating within a dictatorship, but they have certain leeways in terms of pushing things, right? And so she says, well, we realize that people put a lot of barriers and the clerics put a lot of barriers in our way. But then every time we said, well, his majesty wanted this, then of course they would not, they would stop saying anything and say, okay, if the Shah wants it, then you can do it. And she says, after a while, we realized that this was a really convenient way to push things forward as fast as possible. And she says, in retrospect, that was a mistake. Right. Because we shouldn't have done it. We should have actually had, and then, but then I think when she says we should have done it differently, it wasn't an environment where you could actually have discussions. I mean, if you were going to have, let's say a discussion, for example, of marriage and divorce and inheritance rights would have involved multiple sessions on TV and radio and women's newspapers talking about women's rights issues. And then, of course, the clerics would have certainly not allowed that to happen, or they would have, in some cases, they tried to they tried to steal the agenda. Like, for example, mm-hmm. remember this major cleric in the 70s who had a series of articles in the biggest women's magazine of the time, Zana Ruz, mm-hmm. tried to say that true Islam is actually good on all these issues, and you don't really need to have any reform of religious. And the women's magazine published them because what else are you supposed to do? So you couldn't really fight back. So these are the constraints of state feminism. You may have some very important and very good ideas about religious reform, but when you do it under a dictatorship, it becomes a sort of a truncated form that appears. That's fascinating. It kind of points to his comment that perhaps they shouldn't have always played the shock card sort of speaks to the democratic processes and dialogues and debates that would have given those requests more legitimacy rather than just being put down as top-down enforcements by a westernized dictator. But yet at the same time, as you said, they were in a bit of a bind in which perhaps doing that work wouldn't actually have achieved the desired results because of the way And in you which- still have backlashes. I mean, a good example mm-hmm. of that is the United States. For example, you know, the right to abortion was gained 50 years ago, and now we have a severe backlash in so many states in the United States, taking away that right, for example. But at least half of a country is on board because, of course, all this educational campaign that has been done. So it doesn't guarantee not having a backlash. There are people who want to push back on 
in the United States today for gay marriage, for example. But there has been enough work done that you would still be able to have a substantial number of the population. And you simply didn't have that opportunity in Iran to be able to have that kind of a dialogue and back and forth, free dialogue and back and forth on the subject. Because of the closed political space? Because of the closed political space. Like, Mm -hmm. for example, students were not allowed to form their organization. The government was so worried. You wanted Mm -hmm. to even copy a page, a flyer or something. You had to go all the way to the top of the university to be able to get permission for a flyer, posting a flyer, for example. There was extreme limits on freedom of expression, freedom of organization, freedom of association, and so forth in Iranian time, freedom of publication, certainly. And so within that constraint, trying to make reform and bring about change, but within this really restricted environment, of course, you couldn't do it really that well. This is really interesting. And, you know, I mean, basically women get some fundamental rights, right? Whether it's voting, the women's suffrage, they have, they gain custody rights, divorce, all kinds of personal rights within the, within personal legal matters. And they enter the workforce more visibly. larger numbers, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, like to give you an example of Mm -hmm. where there wasn't a debate. So, for example, the family protection law, which was another thing that was created that the Women's Organization of Iran created, now gave the right to divorce to women under certain conditions. If your husband was excessively abusive, for example. And it also gave the right to custody. And it took away from men the right to just, it's called talaq, the right to just divorce your wife at will. You had to actually go to court. You had to make a petition. You still could divorce your wife, but you couldn't just do it summarily. You had to actually go to court and go through the legal process, right? For example, you couldn't just take a second wife. Your first wife had a right to say, I object. And it didn't mean that you didn't take a second wife. It meant that she then had a right to divorce with her alimony. There were these things that were put in place. And suddenly you heard everybody complaining about these uppity women and they're so demanding and oh my god divorce rates are catastrophic in iran they've just gone up off the chart but the reality is that actually divorce rates have in other words it was like 165 you know per 100,000 and it came to 81 and so that means that even though a few women were getting divorced and had the right to divorce the law had actually limited the right of a man to divorce his wife, right? Mm -hmm. That's why the divorce rates had actually plummeted. But if you talk to the ordinary people, they would all say that, oh my God, it's a calamity. Everybody, women in drove are divorcing their husbands. And they would point to a few single women, divorced women who were living alone. Because in pre-modern Iranian society, when a man divorced his wife, she would be absorbed into the extended family. She become the second wife of somebody. She become a n- nanny to her brother's children. Mm-hmm. But now, because you have jobs and women are more educated, they actually go get a job, and they may get their own apartment. And this was scandalous. This idea that you know, a woman would live. So, but so what I'm saying is the reality. If you looked at the figures at the time, it was an entirely different picture. Actually, divorce rates had gone down dramatically, but. Everybody thought it was, and you know, you didn't have a public forum where you could actually have a few sociologists up there who would say, look, this is the reality of what's going on. Here are the charts, for example. Right, right. So it seems like there was a moral panic happening there in society. There was a moral panic. <laughs> right. Right. Caused by these right. yeah, sort of exemplary. And there had been yeah. almost a social contract is one of the things I say in my sexual politics book that yeah. Iranian reformers 
when they started to introduce these reforms, and I mentioned to you how far behind Iran was compared to even Ottoman Empire, they had essentially promised men that give us the right to, for example, educate the women because we need a modern Iran, because we need boys to be educated, basically. And for boys to be educated, the mothers have to be educated. So the rights that were given to women were rights to make them a more better mother. People have talked about it, sort of a domestic, if you will, scientific sort of women's rights. Yeah, At the service of the nation. At the service of a nation, better health, better hygiene, things like Mm -hmm. that, taking your kids for vaccination. And they had made a promise, they had made an implicit promise. And the promise was that we promise you that these women, these things are not going to interfere with traditional expectations of women. So they're going to stay dutiful daughters, faithful wives, and self-sacrificing mothers. And that social contract had held all the way through the beginning of the 1960s. And now it broke apart. Mm -hmm. It broke apart in all these things that we talked about in law, for example, in the consumer industry comes in. And in the mind of people, consumer industries, vulgar display of women's bodies becomes the same as feminism. They don't make a distinction between feminism, which is trying to fight for women's rights, and of course it's fighting for women's sexual rights as well. But feminism in America and Europe was fighting against consumerism, was fighting against playboys, for example, display of women's bodies and things like that. But the Iranian public, the Egyptian public, they don't make a distinction between these two. Consumerism becomes the new face of feminism, and as I said, these uppity women. And then you have, at the same time, an Iranian poet, Farouk al-Farouk who for the first time in the history of modern, history of poetry, not just modern poetry, but Iranian poetry writes about love from the perspective of a woman. Mm-hmm. You have, Iran is a very romantic culture, you know, you have generations going back to the classical poets of 10th to 14th century. Classical Persian poetry is highly romantic, highly erotic, I should say actually homoerotic. And you have a few kind of women, you know, Parvine Etasami starting in the 20th century, writing from a woman's perspective, but never from a woman's sexual uh, desire. And this is what Furur does in poet, poems that talks about, I sinned the sin and I enjoyed it passionately or something like that. She says, mm-hmm. when she writes about, um, you know, she's in a caged marriage. She really wants to get a divorce, but she has a child. She, has, she had a son for a while. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. I don't want to make it, a, a, you know, biographical, the poetry. Mm-hmm. It's not always, but of course she had also gotten a divorce and she her husband had custody. And so to the public, it becomes the sinful woman who, how dare she, she even talks about sex and sexual. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so in, in it, 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 and so this maybe brings me to sort of some of the reasons for the revolution, because you have this coalition that essentially is formed. On the one hand, the clerics who've all along opposed these and the more traditional sectors of society, the bazaar merchants, who still want to marry their daughter at 15. They don't want them to go to college to be able to get a temporary wife, for example, or and all those sort of traditions. They certainly don't like to see women working in high professions. And you have a generation of leftists, sort of the remnants of a two-day party, but now in different forms, who are making, and this is what the Communist Party does everywhere in sort of the third world, where they make a big distinction between what they call women's rights, rights of peasants and rights of workers. And these are like food and work and hygiene and 
kind of things like education and maybe mm-hmm. the, the right to work and maybe childcare centers, but they absolutely abhor what they call bourgeois women's rights. And by that, they mean middle-class women who are demanding greater sexual freedom, for example, or the right to dress the way they wish, for example, or asserting themselves. And these were considered sort of decadent values, immoral values. And in an attempt to appeal to the broader sector of society, and this is sort of happening everywhere now, and the broader sector of society is very sensitive about these issues that are fundamentally changing the institution of family, right? They start saying, well, we're against these bourgeois rights, we're against these decadent rights, but we're for the rights of peasants and workers. And that's how you start to have a coalition that basically overthrows the regime. You have a large enough coalition that includes the traditionalists and the clerics and significant part of the generation of young people, leftist students, nationalists and leftist students. Remember, these are the first people going to college, the first generation. And the whole mores of the university is jarring to them. Zahra Rahnavard is would be, for example, a good example of this. She was an artist in the 60s and 70s. And she goes to Tehran University. She gets admitted to the art school. And now of course, she's exposed to all the latest trends, artistic trends. Um, and she's just completely recoils because to her art is very conventional, very traditional. And she just... She, at a certain point, she says she's almost like suicidal because she just can't reconcile the life that she wants to be an educated woman. She wants to be an artist. She wants to go to university. But then there are these values that she was taught at home. And leftist ideas are very attractive to her also. Mm-hmm. I read everything from Marx, which of course she didn't, but that's what she thinks. Yeah. Zahra Rahnavard, of course, the wife of Mir Hossein Musavi, the yeah, former was, prime minister. Yeah, who's, still, and, uh, who's, you know, who's under uh, prison, the house arrest. The leader of the Green Movement and the former director of Azahra University in Tehran, exactly. right? right. Yes, the right. all-women's right. very strong university. Precisely. So she starts, this is how she is in this period, and I can't find anyone better to really explain the mentality of this generation. So to her, the hijab is comforting, you know, when Ali Shariati comes and says, well, you can be an educated woman and be a professional woman. Um, and, you know, gives example from Madame Curie and things like that, and women who are studying at Cambridge and scholars, but don't buy into the decadence and immorality of the Western world. She totally buys into that. And so does the generation. And I think that becomes a foundation for the revolution. So, and to many people, remember the re- revolution had its, like a million probably leftists in it, huge contingent of leftists and nationalists. And they decide on maybe Ayatollah Khomeini as a f- figurehead, something that would unify the whole country together. But that's not what that's not what these people want. It's not like they want to go back to a religious autocracy, but they want to bring as many people from the Iranian society into the fold of this movement so that they could get rid of the Shah. Right. And gender becomes a thing, which is gender rights, but not all gender rights. So, you know, education and employment and all these things, these stay, but then anything that has to do with women's sexuality, that Mm -hmm. becomes. And so the revolution is essentially carried out by sacrificing these aspects of women's rights. That is so fascinating. Thank you for that very clear sort of leading us up to this moment. And, you know, you pointed out the dangerous sort of conflation between 
women's rights and feminism and sort of this understanding in Iran by swaths of the population that perhaps what feminism went, meant was precisely these ways of life, the sexual liberties and everything that people just found unacceptable within, within or many people found unacceptable within Iranian society. And then, you know, you're talking about this top-down sort of state feminism that gives women many rights. And then this bottom-up women coming and entering the educational system and really going through universities and the workforce and all of that and finding this sort of jarring reality between their their learning from home and what they find uh, somebody like Zahra Rahnavard, who you mentioned. And of course, this is at play. And I think you explained to us beautifully how you see this sort of boiling over and leading to these coalitions that ultimately overthrow the Pahlavi regime. But then you also have this interesting moment, right, in leading up to the revolution in February 1979. So in the fall of 1978, um, and onward after the revolution in March 1979, where foreigners really become interested in the revolution that's happening in Iran. And of course, you've published a book on Michel Foucault and his writings on the Iranian revolution, which, as you mentioned in your book, a large number of his writings, except for two or three, had actually never been translated into English. And up until the publication of your book, in which you've tra translated all of his work from French and added it as an appendix to your book. But I'm curious, you know, since we're at this moment of revolution, if you would indulge us to just discuss a little bit the role of these foreign intellectuals and feminists, such as Michel Foucault, and then later on, Kate Millett and Simone de Beauvoir. Of course, Foucault was interested in the Iranian revolution because he had reached a point where he was interested in a sort of spiritual politics, and he saw a promise. He thought the Western philosophy was at an end, and the Iranian path might point the way forward into a new kind of future that diverged from sort of the dead end of Western Western thinking. And I have from the introduction of your book, this passage that is really fascinating. And I wonder if I can just read these few sentences and have you lead us into this interesting foray into the Iranian revolution and Foucault's understanding of it and role in it. You write on a few occasions, and I will say again that you co-wrote the book, of course, with Kevin B. Anderson, but you both write on a few occasions, Foucault reproduced statements he had heard from religious figures on gender relations in a possible future Islamic Republic, but he never questioned the separate but equal message of these Islamists. Foucault also dismissed feminist premonitions that the revolution was headed in a dangerous direction, and he seemed to regard such warnings as little more than Orientalist attacks on Islam, thereby depriving himself of a more balanced perspective toward the events in Iran. At a more general level, Foucault remained insensitive toward the diverse ways in which power affected women as against men. He ignored the fact that those most traumatized by the pre-modern disciplinary practices were often women and children who are oppressed in the name of tradition, obligation, or honor. So we have this highly progressive intellectual public figure coming to Iran. And if I understand it correctly, he misreads the gender dynamics of the revolution. Yeah. So before that, of course, Foucault, even in, when he was alive, but certainly afterwards, has been highly criticized for his blindness, essentially, on feminism. A generation of American feminists have, philosophers have written on this. And also, I would say blindness about colonialism, because he lived, he was a contemporary of Franz Fanon. And, you know, I, 
for example, Sartre was writing in support of the African revolutions and certainly all that work by Amil Cabral and Césaire, all this was available to him, but he never, of course, ever talks about colonialism, the role of imperialism for that matter. So there are these huge blind spots in her work. He is, as you said, he sees modernity at a dead end and he hopes that Iran might be a sort of a spirituality that would find a way out. Of course, he's extremely uninformed about Iran's history. He knows none of, like, for example, the stuff we talked about today. But he just gets in the water and starts issuing these writings for for the Italian newspaper that has commissioned him to basically write about some journalistic pieces on the Iranian revolution. And it's essentially, it's a sort of a reverse Orientalism because he sees women who are fighting now, now we come to late 78 and early 79, really realizing that there's going to be a complete backlash with regard to women's rights. Because remember, the first thing that Khomeini does when he comes to Iran, the very first thing is to abolish the family protection law that had given minimal rights to divorce, for example. And then the second thing he does is he says, all these women are nude. Basically, he means unveiled and they should basically wear the hijab to go to work. And then he goes and he executes a few openly gay men. So those are like the first three things that he does, right? And then he goes after the ethnic minorities in Iran and accuses them of being separatists, the Kurds, for example. So right away, very quickly, he sort of takes off, if you will, these components of the revolution of which Iranian people were themselves somewhat mm, confused about degree of women's rights that women should have, whether these ethnic minorities who are now demanding autonomy should actually be given these rights or not. So it comes in this atmosphere and he starts saying, oh my God, this is a new form of spirituality and it's going to be completely a new way. And not realizing that it's this theocratic regime that's we're beginning to see the earlier forms of it can use the very same techniques of modernity that all these other states have not used. It's it the, he, for some reason he thought that the theocratic regime will be outside the regime of modernity. But I mean, using his own insight, this is the, really the big perplexing thing about him. Having talked about modernity as such an all-encompassing thing. How did he think that a new clerical regime would operate outside modernity? Wouldn't it have its own disciplinary system, the mechanisms for control of society? But there were people who did see that. Best example of it, and we talk about him in our book and also bring his writing, is Maxime Rodinson, who spent, and Jan Richard. Those are the two people I really would like to mention. Scholars of the Middle East and Iran who had spent decades, you know, studying and Rodinson said, call it almost Islam of fascism. He says, this is fascism coming to Iran. Beware, this is very dangerous. And so did Richard. Rian Richard also realized what was going on. And then Simone and a couple of feminists also saw it because they were, of course, very sensitive on women's issues. So I would put Simone de Beauvoir and Kate Millet on in the category of women feminists, and by the way, both queer, we now know today, of course, by their writings and their lifestyle, who really supported the women's movement that was being crushed completely. And I would take issue with people 
who think that Millet's intervention at the time or de Beauvoir's intervention, writing in support of Iran, she didn't come. She just wrote a statement of solidarity, should be put in the same category, for example, as Lord Curzon or Cromer, you know, the, the Algerians who used the question of women's rights as a wedge issue to basically divide the Algerian people or the Egyptian people. It's an entirely different thing. Absolutely. Has colonialism and imperialism used the question of women's rights as a way to establish its domination? Absolutely. No question about that. The history of that is clearly documented. But are there feminist individuals who through various historical periods in modern Iranian history lent their support and they're not supported by a state and they're individuals and they're genuinely caring as we see today. And I think we need to make that distinction. Otherwise, they're gonna, we're going <laughs> to hit ourselves in a kneecap, basically, because we need that support as Iranian women fighting for women's rights. We need, for example, today, all the global support we can get. But of course, we need to make a distinction between, I don't know, somebody like Condoleezza Rice, for example, who might speak on behalf of Iran women's rights or George Bush's wife or somebody like that, and, you know, feminist who genuinely and deeply cares about women's rights in Iran, members of these smaller organizations, or even people who might today be, have some position, maybe mayor of a city, for example, or are well-known writer or something, and they generally care about issues of Iran. Yeah, this has been a really sort of vexing issue where, with I think especially sort of, as you say, some progressive leftists just being really very cautious about supporting the Women Life Freedom Movement because of some of the misgivings, perhaps. And yet, ultimately, I have seen people in talks and panels come around to saying, well, just because you support anti-imperialism doesn't mean you have to then against a people's movement like the Women Life Freedom Movement stand with the oppressive force here rather than the liberatory force. And I think these are yeah, and I would say that even the hijab issue has to be contextualized, right? So, for example, I have students coming from conservative families, coming to the university, sometimes maybe first generation, from Middle Eastern backgrounds in the United States, and they wear the hijab. And I totally support that and applause them because... This is something they did either because they were very uncomfortable or their families wanted some assurances that when they come to the university and get an education, they still remain loyal to whatever cultural values of that family is. And I think that's a struggle that this individual woman has to decide for herself. She wants to wear the hijab. She doesn't want to wear the hijab. That's an entirely different question. It's an entirely different question in Iran where the hijab has become really the emblem of this reactionary theocratic state forcing and having a whole slew of mechanisms, enforcement mechanisms for torturing and of course, in the case of Masa Amini and many other women, killing women over this issue. And I think a left should be able to make these distinctions between a hijab, that's a cultural expression of someone, particularly in a diaspora community, and a way to maybe holding on to some values. And as they negotiate, and I've seen women wear the hijab, I've seen take them take it off. They go through these stages in their lives. And mm -hmm. state that is actually forcing and using the hijab as a way of reducing women to second and third citizens in the country and also taking away so many other human rights from them. 
Right. I think these distinctions are sometimes difficult to make from the outside, especially with people who have these hesitations about not getting into other people's business and sort of a la Orientalist fashion. But yes, these are all very important sort of distinctions to keep. And I wonder, since we've already sort of moved in this direction, if we can then take it forward. And you write in your dissent piece about the demographics in Iran and how it's a very different population today in trying to come to to grips with what's happening, what's been happening in Iran since September 2022. And, And before that, for many years, as you mentioned very early on in this interview, it has been, in fact, women who for over a decade have been on the front lines of these very visible movements for rights, not just women's rights, but all kinds of rights in Iran. And you write in your piece that fully 75% of the country is urbanized, literacy stands at almost 100% among people under 25, and there are 4 million university students, the majority of whom are women. And the fertility rate, meanwhile, has fallen to 2.1 births per woman from 6.5 in 1979. So what kind of Iran are we seeing today? And as you write in your piece, how it's different from 1979? And how has that contributed to what you think we've been seeing, not just these past months, but over the last couple of decades? So profoundly, it has changed. What What's happened is marriage, as Stephanie Kuntz likes to say in her classic book on marriage, marriage used to be in pre-modern society a way to get in-laws. Sons-in-law and daughters-in-law, of course, procreation. And that was the same also in Iran. So marriage was something that the extended family arranged. So we've moved to a world of companionate marriage. We see that actually happening even in some very conservative communities of Iran where you don't have cousin marriages are, for example, are becoming very small, certainly even semi-arranged marriages, let alone totally arranged marriages, are becoming much mm-hmm. smaller. And so with that, of course, with the as urbanization, industrialization, vaccination, people living longer, and until recently, contraceptive technology being widely available in Iran, you have mm-hmm. a situation where marriage evolves and changes And it becomes not an institution just for having babies, but it becomes a relationship where sex is important, companionship is very important in it. And then with that comes the understanding, well, sex is not just important in marriage, but it's also important outside marriage. What about people who are not married? Don't they have a right to sex? And then with that, what happened in the Western world came an understanding that, okay, well, what about people who are identifying as gay or lesbian? I mean, sex is important, but don't they have a right also to sex? And so this was a very gradual process that took place in the West, I would say a couple centuries probably, but again, it's mm-hmm. happening very fast in Iran. And one of the things that happens is that a lot of these taboos about premarital sex are, have broken down. Now, it's still a very, I'm not saying that it's completely acceptable because girls have or boys have sex and they have sex with people of their own social class. I mean, that's this is a big difference. You don't have sex with a sex worker, but you have somebody who's actually from your own social class. And maybe it gets into marriage, maybe it doesn't. Lots of times it doesn't because the boy doesn't have a job. And so then maybe a tra- more traditional suitor shows up and then the girl goes and has a hymen repair operation. So it's happening still in this context in which that she's having premarital sex, but maybe she's not telling everybody about it, but breaking down these taboos. And but the breakdown of these taboos has a lot to do with, um, oh, and then Iranian society has become so much less 
religious in the way that it used to be. Religion based on fiqh broken down. And I think in this way, the reformers did their duty. I mean, they were needed, essential in this passage to sure. convince people that you didn't need the mujtahid to interpret the text for you, that you personally mm -hmm. could have a direct relationship to the text. I mean, that's really the most important thing they said. Mm -hmm. It's a, a sort of a Protestantization, if you will, of religion. And so with that came a breakdown of the way in which, I'm not saying people are less pious, they're still pious, but their piety isn't expressed in the way that it was expressed before through these religious rituals. And so that has also been a very important factor. So the combination of these is that a lot of taboos in Iranian society about is a girl Najib, which is proper, really means sexually proper, and the sort of, well, the sort of trauma that a family endured if their daughter was divorced or maybe if she was known to have a boyfriend. I mean, all these things were hugely big issues that all that has broken down broken down even in the more traditional society. I mean, remember the story a friend told me of a very conservative woman belonging really to the base of the Islamic Republic, observing the hijab, taking her daughter to some of these parties. Mm -hmm. All sorts of things happen, of course. And she would sit in the car, wait for her daughter to go to the party, and then she'd mm -hmm. take her back home. And when she said, well, I want my daughter to have some experience before she got married. Hmm. I want her to be like me. That's the extent to which things are changing in Iranian society. And so in this context, women have gained a lot of freedom to actually assert themselves, to become leaders of these organizations. And so I come back to what I started with, which is that many of the NGOs and various organizations and entities that have been fighting for human rights, for ecology, for women's rights, prisoners' rights in Iran are led by women. Right. So men are now used to seeing women in these leadership positions as lawyers, mm -hmm. as journalists, as activists, as college professors, for example, as lawyers and so forth. And so that has really shifted relations between the sexes in Iranian society. It's become a society where it's far more accepting of premarital sex, for example, women are living with men in something called white marriage, which is basically cohabitation without that getting into a formal marriage. So all mm -hmm. of that means that when, I think when to me, this thing that Abdul Karim Surush said was particularly mm -hmm. vile because mm -hmm. he went back to the mindset of the 1970s and tried to smear, okay, you don't like this group of people who's formed in Georgetown? Go form your own. Have mm -hmm. another, you know, I know he's at Duke or somewhere else or Harvard, I don't know. He has those connections. Organize <laughs> something you like. And then particularly attacking, as you said very well, an artist who was forced out of Iran, mm -hmm. then she came abroad and here by dictates of American consumerism and Hollywood, she sort of, and Europe is the same thing. She sort of, in order to be accepted, that was the first thing that she had to do. Well, why didn't, why didn't Suruj talk about Shirin Ebadi? who was mm -hmm. on the same panel, be a Nobel laureate. So you see, he's really undermining, he's trying to undermine a movement in which women are playing a very prominent role. And then he gave some suggestions of people mm -hmm. inside Iran and he didn't name one woman. 
Right, right. No, I'm not even sure Golshifta Farhani had to strip down to be accepted. She's a great actress and or actor. And also, I feel like she was ahead a few years, given that this movement has been rooted in the notion of bodily women's bodily autonomy, everybody's bodily autonomy, right? Right. And I don't know what context she did it under, but of course, she has every right to do that mm-hmm. and represent something. But the fa- to me, it's more interesting. It's- really upsetting that that mm-hmm. Scrooge would then like pick this as a way of <laughs> trying to undermine the Iranian women's movement. Right, and I right. want to just maybe end by on mm-hmm. this note, which is that we should not lose sight of the fact of how crucial, first of all, this history has been, how much we have sacrificed to come to this point. You know, I remember... Um, it was during the 1979 revolution. It was a little bit after that. I went mm-hmm. to a protest movement. There were a few thousand people, I think, there. And by the way, mm-hmm. this was happening abroad by then. And mm-hmm. I asked to speak on behalf of women's rights and feminism. And by then I had started translating and publishing about women's issues and women's rights. I mean, that's how I sort of started entering the these protests. And the mm-hmm. first thing they asked me was, well, how many martyrs has your movement given, your mm-hmm. organization given? And then it was my right to speak about women's rights was contingent on how many martyrs our little feminist group had given to them. And of course, we hadn't given any martyrs in that sense. Although mm-hmm. if I had known it at that time, I would have said we've given martyrs for over half, one and a half centuries for right. the cause of women's rights and human rights in Iran. Right. And so we have given that. If that's what they're going to judge us by, We've done that. We've paid our dues for the sake of Iranian women's rights and human rights in Iran. And we certainly er have earned ourselves a prominent place at the table. We shouldn't lose sight of that and shouldn't let the movement get distracted by this and that, which I Mm -hmm. see happening all the time. That's something we need to hold on to. Wow, yes, thank you. I mean, you did mention at the beginning when I pointed to the decades of work and where are we, that really what we should keep in mind is how much women have achieved rather than looking at it sort of from the other perspective of why haven't we achieved more. And it is truly astounding. And I'm, I know I've already kept you for too long, but if I could just sort of bring this around a little bit to the present moment, if you have a few more minutes with us, where you personally stunned by what happened after the after the death of Masajino Amini in custody in morality police custody were you stunned with the protests or how did you perceive this happening again both as an intellectual but also just as an Iranian woman who's been there to witness the past decades what was your first reaction oh of course it was absolutely stunning but then on at the same time it was almost like expected because when you look at the history of the moments, particularly in the last decades, uh, mm-hmm. one of the issues that we had was that these there was there were ethnic, I should call it, nationality movements, for example, of Iran, the Kurds, for example, or the Baluch, consistently fighting for their rights. Were women's protests, consistently the women of Enghalab Street, for example, mm-hmm. young women who got up and publicly took off their hijab. And there were women who in various campaigns for prisoners' rights, for example. And then you had, in 2019, you had really major urban and rural protests, workers' rights, very central to that, right? Just before mm-hmm. COVID hit. I mean, almost mm-hmm. COVID stopped it for a year or two, and then it took off after that. So it's about time that these pieces, various pieces, finally came together and they hurt themselves. And really, I think what is stunning is how we're hearing ourselves. And I I don't know if your audience 
got to see this recent statement by Iranian unionists and social activist mm. organizations. It's really quite a beautiful statement. And it touches mm-hmm. all these points on rights of nationalities, no child labor, but also gender mm-hmm. recognition of all forms of gender identity and elimination of discriminations against women and men. I mean, just really, and, and workers' rights. In But the reason that it does yes. that. Is that because mm-hmm. women are now in all these movements? We hear them from Baluchistan to Kurdistan to leaders mm-hmm. of trade unionism, mm-hmm. of course, in various campaigns. Because they are there and because they are informed by this, by feminism, when they articulate these demands, when they're coming together in coalition building, that's why we see a statement like this that can address and touch all these issues. Mm-hmm. The centrality of women and feminist women to this moment, I cannot underestimate that, mm-hmm. how important it has been and how crucial it is to hold on to it as the movement yeah. progresses. Yeah, we've seen such progressive statements coming out of Iran, whether it's the the union statement that you mentioned or statements written out of prison by human rights activists and workers who've been locked up for their work, such as Nagis Mohammadi's statement, for example. Exactly. And and then you, it's an interesting moment in part because we did talk about the kind of support that is coming from the outside. And at the same time that we have these incredible sort of progressive statements from within Iran, We have the opposition coalition forming outside of Iran and trying to sway foreign powers into becoming less, uh, giving less collaboration to the Iranian state, so to speak. And I don't know if I can take this last question into a bit of a perhaps political direction. First of all, do you see liberation happening in the near future? And if so, how do you see you you told us how the forces came together for the 1979 revolution, right? Where do you see the forces coming for this happening if it should indeed happen? I think the coalition that we see that was created in Iran is really the foundation for change. The question is whether the coalition can hold because mm-hmm. the enemies of this coalition are very aware of its weak points. They're very aware of, for example, the sensitivity of Iranians towards the rights of national minorities of Iran, very Mm -hmm. aware of the remaining trauma and anxiety about the sexual emancipation of Iranian women, for example. Mm -hmm. They're very aware of all these things, and they're going to be pushing these issues over and over. This morning, I heard Mm -hmm. one of these religious reformers on Iranian television saying, Mm -hmm. on the one hand, he said, the Islamic revolution is over. And then on the other hand, he said, he was basically talking still to the Khamenei and to the regime. If we don't save it, Iran is going to be divided into multiple nations. So you hear that. And I think those are the biggest dangers to Iran. The other thing is, I mean, I'm worried about the monarchist tendencies also. I mean, to me, I remember my grandfather used to say, eventually there'll be only two monarchies left. There will be the King of England and it will be the King of the Deck of Cards. Uh, But the Uh question is, I mean, where do you have a monarchy that is truly democratic? It hasn't happened anywhere. Wherever it is, it's basically ceremonial. Mm -hmm. The reason the British don't get rid of their monarchy is not because it really does anything. It's because it's a major tourist attraction, right? (laughs) Who would go and watch those castles and things like that? And that's Mm -hmm. true for, I mean, everywhere else I, I look, pretty much everywhere else I look, I would say particularly in a country like Iran that has so much oil. The whole idea of having that kind of a 
regime in a country with oil, with no, with very little history of democracy. You know, we've had it, small mm-hmm. periods, constitutional period, maybe a little bit Mossadegh period, but we don't have it. We have a lot of work to do. Ultimately, mm-hmm. I mean, what is it that we want? We want hopefully a parliamentary democracy mm-hmm. where all these voices have to be represented. So yeah, is there a place for reformists? Absolutely. They can have a party and try to recruit based on that. There'd be parties that would be more regional based. I mean, that whole discussion has to be brought up. How do you make a greater representation? Mm -hmm. That was done in the Constitutional Revolution, actually. We have a model that there was representation based on regional representation, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you have more representation of unionists, for example, workers' unions, Mm -hmm. for example? And Mm -hmm. then with gender Ideally, you would want to have organizations which have strong feminist representations in them. So Kurds, for example, but you have strong Kurdish women representing, for example, their party or unionists where you Mm -hmm. have strong feminists representing them. And so ultimately, I mean, that's ultimately what I'm certainly hoping for to see in Iran, because I'm hoping that we've moved away from some idealistic notion that Iran will tomorrow become a socialist revolution that would undermine every kind of hierarchy in Iranian society. I mean, that's not, that hasn't happened. And we mm-hmm. have a long way to go to something like that mm-hmm. even in Western countries. But we have a chance of having a parliamentary democracy that would be social democratic because that's what happened in the constitutional revolution. It was social democratic. And that's what happened with Mossadegh's era. He was also a social democrat and so were many of his supporters. So we have mm-hmm. a history of social democracy in Iran and we have mm-hmm. a history of short, but history of parliamentary democracy. And I don't have time to go here, but we've spent over a century trying to limit the powers of a monarchy in Iran. That's what the constitutionalists did. That's what Mossadegh did. And in the end, okay, we're beyond that stage. And so I'm, I'm hoping we'd have discussions about these issues. These are important discussions to have about mm-hmm. the role of monarchy in Iranian history, about mm-hmm. the role of religious reformers, about the conflicts we see, even some conflicts we see between... The new diaspora generation, for example, and the people who spent their formative years inside Iran or are living inside Iran. I mean, there are some genuine differences, which is fine. But these mm-hmm. all, as I said, it's a good time to talk about these differences and just make mm-hmm. it very open as we move, hopefully, towards a more democratic Iranian society. Dr. Jeanette Afari, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to have you on this program. We went way over time and I'm so grateful for it. I'm so grateful for your time. I myself have learned so much and I'm sure this has been so beneficial to our listeners. Thank you so much for giving us all of your insights. Thank you very much, Dr. Siam Deuce. It has been a pleasure. I very much enjoyed the interview. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you very much for listening. My guest was Dr. Jeanette Afari. She is Melicham Professor of Global Religion at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Be well until next time. You were listening to an episode of Woman Life Freedom, All In on Iran, broadcast to you from the University of Texas at Austin. I'm your host, Nahid Siamdust. Until next time, Jinjian Azadi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. Zendegi.